This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 23rd, 2019. I'm Megan Cantwell. In this week's show, I talk with Greg Miller about how straightforward solutions can prevent suicides. And Sarah Crespi talks with AR Siders about managed climate retreat, changing where people live in a strategic response to climate change. I'm Megan Cantwell, and I'm here with Greg Miller to talk about his story in our special issue this week about promising approaches in suicide prevention. Thanks so much for joining me, Greg. Sure. Glad to be here. Your story starts out with some current news, which is that the Federal Communications Commission in the U.S. recently announced plans to change the number of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline from 1-800-273-TALK to a shorter three-digit number, likely 988. What kind of effect could shortening the number for this lifeline have on prevention? I think the idea is just to make it easier to remember that 10-digit number is is a little cumbersome. And mm-hmm. having a simple number like 988 that people can remember will hopefully encourage more people to call and reach out for help when they're experiencing a crisis. And there are a number of straightforward approaches, as you call them, in your story that you talk about. And one of the big ones is lifelines. When did these start and what is the research shown on their effectiveness? Suicide hotlines have been around for for quite a while, at least since the 1950s. The current system that we have in the U.S. is called the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And it's actually a network of about 170 separate crisis call centers around the country. You get routed to one that's closest to where you are so that ideally they can connect you to resources in your area. And then if that one happens to be all tied up, you get routed to another close, you know, hopefully close by one. Mm -hmm. Overall, there is more research than I had realized going into this on the lifeline. And the vast, vast majority of people who call report that the experience talking to a trained counselor on the lifeline saved their life and kept them safe. So these have been around since the 1950s. Has the technique that these crisis counselors use when they're talking to people on the phone changed much since then? It has evolved. There's a a research team in Canada that's done a lot of research looking into what aspects of the interaction between the caller and the counselor make for a positive outcome, meaning a reduction in 
the person's suicidality and an intent to harm themselves by the end of the call. These guys listened to thousands of calls in real time. They got permission from the crisis centers to do this. What they found was actually, you know, really just common sense that when the counselors expressed empathy and kind of established a rapport with the caller, they were much more effective at reducing their their suicidality. They just treat them with respect and take their problems seriously and kind of work with them to find a solution as opposed to just telling them what to do. That approach seemed to be the most effective. And sometimes they also do follow-up calls as well, right? Is this just recently or has this been a practice for a while? It's been going on for a while, but the more research is done, the more it suggests that this is a really important thing, that the the call with a counselor can really help de-escalate a crisis for someone, but it's not going to resolve a lifetime of problems or, or serious mental illness or substance abuse. So the idea now is to use that initial call as a sort of a foot in the door to getting people into a sort of pathway of care that's tailored to their situation. But the act of following up a few weeks later has been shown to really help people and uh, reduce their feelings of desperation and their intent to harm themselves. Another prevention method that you talk about in your story is how care centers like hospitals and clinics can refine their protocols in order to reduce the rate of suicides. Could you talk about what that entails? The Zero Suicide Program is something that's really caught fire in the last five years or so at hospital systems around the country. It it did start at Henry Ford, which is based in Detroit. And it came out of a discussion actually that happened after they applied for a grant and didn't get it. The grants were supposed to be for clinicians trying to design perfect care for a particular condition, could be any condition. But at Henry Ford, the condition they, they wanted to design perfect care for was depression. And they didn't get the grant. And that prompted them to think harder about what would perfect care for people with depression look like. And so one person at the table during the discussions was a nurse, and she said, well, if we had perfect depression care, then we would have no suicides. And so that idea kind of caught on and became like an aspirational goal for the people there that they should try in every case to prevent suicide. And so the program, it's evolved over the years with evidence, but there's some basic things like just screening all of the patients in their behavioral health system. So these are patients who come in with depression or maybe substance abuse, things like that, screening them at every contact with a hospital to assess their risk for suicide. And then having a, a pretty standardized pathway of care depending on their risk so that doctors and providers no, given a patient's risk, like here's a menu of options and kind of like a flow chart of the different things that can be done for them to relieve them of a little bit of the decision-making process by having it all kind of standardized. Other facilities in the United States have also adopted this protocol as well? Hundreds, actually, of healthcare systems and clinics are trying to implement this now. And there's a large study that's getting underway to see how well it's working at nine big healthcare systems around the country. At Henry Ford, it did seem to have a dramatic impact on their suicide rate in the, the first 10 years or so that it was put in place. The last prevention method that you talk about in your story is removing the means to die by suicide, also known as means reduction. 
Why did healthcare practitioners think this was an important thing to tackle? One thing is there's kind of a misconception that when someone intends to take their own life, that they'll just keep trying and trying and no matter what they need to do to do that. And that's really not true. Most people who are in a suicidal crisis, it's brief and their thinking is very restricted in that brief moment of crisis. They can only see one way out. And if you take that one way, you know, that means away from them, they're not actually very likely in reality to to go find another means to harm themselves. There's good evidence that this is, in fact, the case. And in the story, I use the example of Sri Lanka, which had in the 1980s, one of the world's highest suicide rates. And the most common means there was ingesting pesticides, because a lot of people in Sri Lanka work in the fields themselves and have access to agricultural Mm -hmm. chemicals like pesticides. And some of those pesticides are very, very lethal. And so a lot of the deaths there by suicide were caused by pesticides. And so once the national government began to ban some of those over a period of about 20 years, the overall suicide rate in the country began to drop and has now dropped pretty precipitously from what it once was. One of the leading means of suicide in the United States is guns, though, and that's a little bit harder to tackle in terms of means reduction, right? It's tough to think about banning guns at this point in time in this country. It's, it's just not going to happen. So I talk about a few of the strategies that people are trying to kind of work around the edges of the problem. A number of states have passed so-called red flag laws, which allow family members, police, doctors, the details vary a little bit from state to state, but to petition a court to temporarily remove firearms from someone who's at risk of harming themselves or harming others. So those those laws have, have really come on strong and in just the last few years, more and more states seem to be passing them. At the same time, there's some professional organizations like the American Medical Association sees this as a major problem and they're working really hard to encourage physicians to talk with patients more Mm -hmm. about firearm safety. It's not a topic that a lot of physicians feel comfortable discussing. So they're trying to develop some training materials so doctors feel more comfortable addressing it with their patients. Yeah. So within the U.S., a combination of the multiple approaches to suicide prevention that you've outlined in your story have been implemented in some way. But despite that, the rate of suicides in the U.S. has grown since 1999. What do you think might be driving that? Yeah, it's really hard to know. I think it's a it's a pretty complex problem. There are a lot of societal issues or issues of access to mental health care. You know, sometimes economic conditions can weigh into it. It's there's no one path that leads someone to the brink of taking their own life, and usually it's it's really a combination of factors. And so. I think it's a complex problem, and it's it's one that probably needs solutions at different levels, from the the individual to changes, innovations in healthcare to you know maybe some state or national policy things that might be able to help. We have some ways to help prevent suicide. It's it's just a matter of implementing them and overcoming the barriers, whether they be cost or political will or just people stuck in an old way of doing things. All right. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. Greg Miller is a science journalist based in Portland, Oregon. You can read his story along with others in the special issue at sciencemag.org. Stay tuned for Sarah Crespi's interview with A.R. Siders about managed climate retreat.
This week's episode is brought to you in part by Kroger Grocery Stores. Did you know that one in eight Americans struggle with hunger? Yet 40% of food produced in the U.S. gets thrown away. And a lot of that food waste happens at home. When food waste is sent to the landfill, greenhouse gases are released. So it's a problem for our planet, too. But think about this. If we could redirect just one-third of the food we waste to people in need, we would more than cover the unmet food needs across the country while helping to protect our planet. That's what Kroger is doing through their Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation. Last year alone, Kroger donated 325 million meals to food banks. And they've got some great tips to help reduce food waste at home, too. It's all part of their goal to achieve zero hunger and zero waste by 2025. Check out Kroger.com slash ZHZW to learn more. That's Kroger.com slash ZHZW. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month, the kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project, which will help develop their creativity and their confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All projects, inspirations, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project. Detailed, easy-to-follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com slash magazine. That's kiwico.com slash magazine. A lot of thought and planning that we're doing nowadays seems to focus on averting climate change, or at least preventing the worst effects from happening. But some things will happen. Waters are probably going to rise. We're going to see more intense storms, more unpredictable weather, changes in the way water moves around the planet. A.R. Siders and colleagues wrote a policy forum this week in Science talking about something called climate retreat. And this is not about giving up on climate change, but it's more about being strategic about where people live and making sure that any changes to that are well managed. So welcome, Siders. Hi. So people will ask you what you study and do you, do you feel like you're going to bum them out right away? <laughs> So yeah, I, I tell people that I deal with coastal climate change and hazards and how we think about that. I think initially people can have a strong reaction to that because no one wants to leave their home, the place where they live. But after a minute or two, a lot of people can start to think, yeah, maybe not right now, but you're right. If the hurricanes get terrible, if it starts flooding all the time or you know, 30 years down the road, maybe not today, but 30 years down the road, we really will need to start thinking about that. So a big question in managed retreat isn't just, it's not going to happen today. It might not even happen this decade. In some areas, we're talking 20, 30, 40 years down the road. But we have to start thinking that long because we're building buildings and we're building roads and we're building transportation that lasts for 50 or 100 years. So I gave like a really quick definition of climate retreat. How do you define that term? 
We often say manage retreat to mean moving people and assets out of harm's way, away from risks like wildfire or floods or sea level rise. Our two main arguments in this policy forum are that managed retreat needs to be integrated into a bigger strategy and it needs to be managed in a way that meets those strategic goals. You're not just moving people for the sake of moving them. You're doing this because you want them to be safer or you want to create a public park or you want to revitalize your local economy. There's something else, some goal that you're trying to achieve, some bigger, broader goal. There are many different ways you can relocate people. You can ban rebuilding. You can buy out their homes. You can help a whole community relocate. The way that you do that managed retreat should be chosen in order to help you meet that goal. Is there any quantification of the number of people at risk from, say, floods and fires as a consequence of climate change? Worldwide, there's several estimates. Some say as many as a billion people could be threatened. Some say several hundred million. In the United States alone, estimates range from about 13 to 120 million people being at risk from sea level rise and floods. Are there retreats already happening? Can you give an example of some place where people no longer build or where people have had to move away because of the change in climate or because of risk of fire or flood? There's actually lots of retreat happening all over the world. It just doesn't get much attention. It's not often integrated into big strategies. In the United States, we can talk about unmanaged retreat, which would be what happens when people just abandon their homes and leave them after disasters. And then there's managed retreat happening. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, has been funding relocation, buying up flood-prone homes and helping homeowners move away from floodplains for the last 30 years. And that's happened all over the country. So those are U.S. examples. What about around the world? Because climate change is pretty global. Internationally, we've seen a lot of countries that have done retreat. Uh, we see retreat in Australia, Germany, Japan, New Zealand, the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Colombia. The Philippines had a number of efforts to relocate people after a series of typhoons hit the country. So they wanted to move these sort of at-risk settlements that are near the coast and near these floodplains into safer areas farther inland. The Philippines is actually considering relocating their government more inland. Jakarta, Indonesia is considering relocating their main government and infrastructure farther inland to avoid sea level rise and floods. Where people end up, where they retreat to, those places are not always prepared for the newcomers. Yes, they can be completely unprepared for the newcomers. And honestly, we don't know a lot about where those people go and where they do end up and whether they're better off or not. We can't provide support for them, which they might need. They might need psychological support or social support or financial support. And if we don't know when they're leaving, how they're leaving or where they're going, it's very difficult to support them during that transition. What are some of the incentives for people to keep living in these areas that are so endangered? Why can't people just say, oh, this is, this is not looking good. We should just get out of here. Yeah. In some places, people might have jobs nearby. They might be fishermen. They might work at the port. They might work in the oil industry offshore. In other places, they might have lived there for generations. They might be living in a home that their great-grandfather built and feel deeply connected to that place. And in other areas, they might just really enjoy the view and like living on the coast. There's all these different kinds of logistical, practical, and sort of emotional amenities that come from living in these at-risk areas. Do you want to also mention some of the incentives for people to sell real estate in these areas? <laughs> yeah. So property developers have a very short-term interest. There can be a huge incentive to build, to put in more 
infrastructure, more buildings, more people. Local governments get property tax revenue from those developments. So they might be encouraging that kind of development because they know that if it stands for a year, well, they're not going to be there when the hurricane hits two years from now. They're not the ones who are going to have their basement flooded, or they're not the ones who are going to lose all of their family photos. They have a short-term economic incentive to make money from building these buildings, and then the people who live there have the long-term consequences. Do you see this as a message for people who live in at-risk areas, for people who are making policy you know, at the government level? Who's the best audience for this information? Probably government officials, nonprofits who are engaged in this space, community advocates who are trying to think about how what they want their future to look like. But I also hope that homeowners and community members will take this as a way to think, think about what they want. What do you want your community to look like in 30 years or 50 years? If you can think about what you want it to look like, getting there to that goal might require some retreat along the way. And what about keeping a community together? So say you've, your family and all the neighboring families have lived in the same place for a really long time. Can you just all move together? Is that something that could be planned and managed? There are examples of small communities, a couple hundred people relocating together. So finding a new site, building new homes, and deciding they're going to move as a group. It can be particularly important for communities that are very tight, that have a lot of social cohesion, or internationally, it might be really important for sovereign nations that are trying to move large groups of people. Are there examples of people moving from country to country in a managed way? Moving from country to country so far hasn't happened entirely yet, but we're starting to see examples, especially from low-lying island nations. So the Marshall Islands has an agreement with the United States that Marshall Islanders can move to the United States. Kiribati and Fiji are starting to think about where their people are going to go internationally when sea levels rise. Wow. That's, those, I mean, that's abandoning a whole island. The reality for some of these islands is, is that if climate change isn't stopped very soon, some of these island nations are going to disappear. They're not just facing the loss of their community or their neighborhood. They're facing the loss of their country and potentially their sovereign status as a nation. It's a real challenge. How do you pick where to go? This is a really difficult question. Um, for the Marshall Islands, it was a result of historic connections where they have opportunity because of the things the United States has done to the Marshall Islands. For Kiribati, why they chose Fiji, I actually don't know. In terms of homeowners who are moving to a new neighborhood, it might be just as simple as this is where government is providing support for me to go, or this is where I can afford to move to. We don't know enough about where people are going to really know why they choose to go where they do. This is, yeah, it's intense. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's a real research problem in terms of even in terms of, say, like the United States, these relocation programs, we don't know enough about where people go. We don't know. Their homes are purchased and then they move somewhere and we don't have data on where that is. What about this Bangladeshi idea of making cities more attractive? So instead of just preventing people from buying houses, it's instead making them want to go to the city. I heard this idea presented by Dr. Salimul Hook out of Bangladesh and the idea was, how do we invest in areas where people are moving to, so large urban areas, and how do we invest in places where maybe it makes sense for them to go away from the coast, away from the most vulnerable areas, so that we have something for people to move towards? This proposal in Bangladesh was, how could they provide educational opportunities or employment opportunities so that maybe people aren't leaving immediately, but maybe instead of staying on the coast and being fishermen who are tied to the coast and 
need to live in vulnerable areas, maybe they have more opportunities to live in the city and have a different employment trajectory in a safer space. We're talking about leaving land, leaving property, changing jobs, ways of life. And one thing you write about is how this affects different people differently. This isn't always fair. One of the things we try to notice is that retreat can be really inequitable. It can be really hard on people who have the fewest resources, on the lowest income and the poorest neighborhoods. In a lot of places in the world, the people who live in the most vulnerable areas are also the people with the fewest resources to deal with that. If we just say people need to retreat on their own, they might not have the resources to move. Moving is expensive. It can be hard. You might have to abandon your property if you've put in an investment in that, or you might have to lose your job. If we can do retreat in a way that provides support for people that is strategic, trying to achieve goals, and managed in a way that helps people, hopefully we can address some of the inequality that comes with this. This just seems really hard. I think I'm just feeling very cynical this month. <laughs> it's, of the adaptation options, retreat is a really challenging one. All adaptation is challenging in, in different ways, but retreat can be really challenging because it touches on so many aspects of politics, and finances, and incentives, and people's emotions, and their history, right? It's tied up in all of these difficult problems. And yet it's so needed that we have to try to untangle those. Some days I'm more optimistic about it than others, but I always come back to the idea that we need to do this. And so I'm going to force some optimism. I'm going to be optimistic about it because we need to do it. Maybe it's a branding issue. Yeah. <laughs> this is often a discussion is, uh, could we not call it retreat? Because retreat sounds like we're losing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Climate surrender. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Like, oh, we lost. My favorite quote on retreat comes from a U.S. Marine Corps General Oliver Smith, who gave this, he says, retreat, hell, we're just advancing in a new direction. And <laughs> I love it, right? Because it's so Marine Corps, oorah. But it's also really important. We can't just think about this as we're giving up or we're treating. It's really about stepping back, taking stock, and moving in a new direction. And that's why... The idea of giving people an incentive or why should they move away? Let's put something attractive inland. You know, we, it can't just be about where they're leaving. It has to be about why they're moving to something. Give them something to move towards as well as away from. It's not about losing. It's about choosing which battles to fight. Do we want to try to hold the ocean back in this place? Maybe not. Maybe we just don't want to fight that battle. And so we're going to move back, pick something else to put our energy into. I feel like if we were able to make decisions like that, coordinate a bunch of different processes to make it happen, that would be a real advance. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that uh, coming down to the governance, the how you do this is always, always really difficult. I take a lot of encouragement from the fact that people are doing this. You know, there's a long list of countries that have done this. The U.S. has done this. It's not impossible. It's just difficult. And those can seem like the same thing sometimes, but they're very different. All right. Thank you so much, Ciders. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate this. A.R. Siders is a professor at the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. You can find a link to her story at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and many other places. Or you can listen on the Science website. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. 
To place an ad on the website, contact midroll.com. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.